0: pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you today asking for your blessing in worship to you. And Lord, I ask you that you bless these words that come out of my mouth, because Father, I am just a mouthpiece for your truth. And regardless of how these words come out, your will cannot be subverted. So I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. So our passage today comes from Romans six twelve to fourteen. Let sin therefore reign in your not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, as our favorite pastor mentioned a couple of weeks ago, in what I can only describe as senior ministerial glee. This is one of those passages that preachers, I think, either love or hate to preach. And I think congregations, uh, while probably not admitting it, secretly love this passage because it gives us the to-do list that we so desperately and masochistically crave. Will you please stop telling us what God has done for us in Christ? We hear this every single week. Can you just tell us what we're supposed to do and stop with the mind-numbing repetition of all the things that God has done for us and continues to do for us in Christ? So here it is, right here in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. Stop sinning already. Get your act together and don't do anything that's disobedient to God. Everyone feel better now? Would you like me to fill in the details of what we might be called to do? Here it is. First, go to Exodus 20. Follow all of God's explicit instructions in the Ten Commandments. When you're done with that, turn to Matthew 5 and read through to chapter 7. (coughs) You see, this is where Jesus clarifies what you just read in Exodus 20. Once you've got a handle on all that, you probably don't need me to explain any of this passage today. Well, obviously, I'm making light of our attitude towards sin but I'm not doing anything that we already don't do on our own. And whether or not you expected this sermon to be a running diatribe of all the sins that we need to avoid, like don't look at bad stuff on the internet, don't beat your wife or your husband, don't drink till you fall down drunk, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't lie or use the Lord's name in vain, or don't make idols out of anything that you put above your love for God. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint But that's not what this sermon is going to be about, exactly. And I'm guessing that you all know that we're not supposed to be doing any of these things anyway. This is not Christian rocket science. So what am I going to talk about today? Here it is. I'm going to talk about the why. Why should we do anything that God commands us to do? Because if we don't get a handle on the why, we're never going to get a handle on so, we're in the book of Romans. So, I want to go back and see what Paul just told us in, in, in previous chapters as to why we have to fight our sin at every point in our life. In Romans 1 through 5, Paul has dedicated himself to telling Roman Christians and us just how bad we really are, and that it is in Christ alone that we will find the solution to our sin problem. And so finally here in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6, Paul tells all believers that in light of what he just spent the last five chapters explaining, this is what we need to be doing. Is this a to-do list? For sure. But the reason Paul waited five chapters to get here is because he knows how we all operate, himself included, as he will so honestly describe in the very next chapter of Romans. Yes, we are to fight sin constantly and continually, but Paul just told us in chapter 6, 5 through 11, that we're dead to sin. Sin and death no longer have dominion over us if we are in Christ Jesus. So if that's true, then why does he give us this exhortation to let not sin reign in our mortal bodies? It sort of sounds like he's contradicting himself, and we all know that that can't be true. So what is going on? Well, I'd like to suggest that Paul might be talking about something just a little bit different. And I want to revisit verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's exhortation to fight against sin is right in the middle of a why we should battle sin sandwich. Verses 10 and 11 set up the first why, and verse 14 reiterates the point by essentially summarizing the gospel in one sentence. God no longer judges us by whether or not we can actually keep this law. Rather, by his inexhaustible grace, he has sacrificed his only son, who actually did keep the law perfectly, so that all those who believe are now seen by God as having kept the law perfectly, just like Jesus did. But regardless of this miracle, and it is a miracle, this still doesn't change the fact that Paul is clearly telling us here in verses 12 and 13 that we are to fight sin in all our Christian being. So in trying to better understand this brief passage, and most importantly, how it applies to our life and how we can live a faithful Christian life, I want to address three theological ideas. And both of these, all three of these ideas, are specifically related to verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Rightly understanding this verse is the key to, first, understanding what Paul is asking us to do in 12 and 13, as well as answering the why question, but ultimately, it's the key to understanding the entire gospel. So here are the three theological ideas that I want to talk. First, the indicative and the imperative, stay with me. Second, what does the Bible say about sanctification? And third, what does the Bible say about the law? First, the indicative and the imperative. Now, Jeff introduced this terminology over the course of the last couple of weeks, but I wanna look at these two terms in a little bit closer detail. What are the indicative and the imperative? From a linguistic standpoint, And the reason why these words have been engaged as a means for understanding the gospel is that they identify two moods within Greek syntax. And they mean pretty much what you think they mean. The indicative mood indicates a particular reality. It is something that simply is. And the imperative mood is a directive or a command. It is the language of commanding us to do something. The imperative is not a suggestion. But in Scripture, very often the imperative is also presented describing the result of our potential obedience if the command is obeyed, full well knowing that it's impossible for the command to be perfectly fulfilled, at least by us, in a way. So in a syntactical sense, the imperative is actually now acting like an indicative. Here's an example of what I'm talking about from Scripture that you're probably familiar with. And behold, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Yes, Jesus is telling the lawyer that if you obey these commands, the imperatives, then you will have eternal right. Congratulations, you got it right. But I think we all are familiar with what happens next. The lawyer, seeking to justify himself, asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? At which point Jesus proceeds to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I want to go back to to Matthew 13, chapter 11, because this is where Jesus tells us exactly why he's telling the parables. They're to show us what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Unfortunately, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan and the first thing we do is think that it's about us and that Jesus is telling us that this is how we can prove our faithfulness. When in truth, the parable is not about what we need to be doing, it's about what Jesus has already done for us. It is the imperative in the form of an indicative. This is why Jesus at the end says, you go and do likewise. Are we commanded to act as the good Samaritan did? Absolutely. Can we do it perfectly? No. But Jesus can, and he did. So the point is, trust in him, in his ability to fulfill God's perfect commands perfectly. This was the problem of Israel throughout the whole Old Testament. They confused the imperative with the indicative. They thought that performing God's commands is what was going to save them. But God reminded them more times than I can count, that, this, that, that it wasn't their strict obedience to the law, if and when they could actually keep it, that pleased God. But that in their obedience, their hearts had to be in the right place if it was not count for anything. Jesus, in Matthew 15, 8, 9, quotes Isaiah 29, 13, describing this exact problem. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines and commandments of men. So simply stated, the indicative is the reason why we do anything in obedience to God. In short, it is God's gracious gift to us in Christ that both takes away the sin of the world as well as our individual sin. But it also makes all those who trust in Christ perfect and righteous in God's eyes. Some of you may have heard the terms vertical and horizontal associated with the indicative and the imperative. All this means is that the indicative describes the vertical relationship between God and us, all those who believe in Him. It is what He has done for us in Christ through no effort or desire of our own. And as I just said, the imperative is what we are supposed to do because of the indicative. The imperative is our obedience, it is our good works, and it is what we do in our battle against sin. But unlike the vertical nature of the indicative, the imperative is actually our horizontal relationship with our neighbor. It's horizontal specifically because our obedience while it is required by God, does not have an effect on our salvation. Because that relationship has been satisfied by Christ's work on our behalf. So the horizontal nature of the imperative, the commands of God, or the adherence to God's law, is how we love one another. But there's one particular aspect concerning the relationship between the indicative and the imperative that it's absolutely critical that you understand And if you take away anything from what I say here today, remember this. The indicative must always come before the imperative. Rightly understanding the order of the indicative and the imperative is critical to understanding the gospel rightly. And this is precisely how Paul structures just about every one of his arguments in the New Testament. He always presents what God has done for us in Christ before he tells us how we are to live and walk in Christ. Everything we do in our obedience must first be grounded in the indicative, or it's meaningless, even offensive, to God. The why, or the because, of the indicative is what drives the entire historical redemptive narrative of the Bible. It's the primary foundational principle of everything in Scripture. God always acts first, and because of this, we respond in obedience, praise, and thankfulness. Unfortunately, fairly early on in creation, we decided we didn't like how God set things up and thought we could go it alone. But even in this cosmically and monumentally stupid decision, God in His infinite love and grace acted first again by giving us new life through the sacrificial gift of His Son, even though we never asked for it or even knew that we needed it. And so when we truly grasp the miraculous gift of Christ, we can now understand why Paul asks this question in Romans 6 too. How can you have died to sin and still live in it? And the answer to this question is the means for how we have any hope of doing what Paul is exhorting us to do here in Romans 6, 12 and 13. Leads to my second point. What does the Bible want us to understand about sanctification? There's actually a two-fold aspect of sanctification. It's not just a process. Yes, we are to work out our salvation with sin and trembling, But this does not deny the truth that when we were fully justified by God because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we were also simultaneously and fully sanctified by God in Christ. Because if that's not true, then our sanctification must necessarily have an effect on our salvation, which is works righteousness, and we know that cannot. John Calvin adopts the terminology of double grace to address this exact point in his institutes. Calvin says, By partaking of him we receive a double grace, namely that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious Father, and secondly, that sanctified by Christ's Spirit we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. Calvin goes on to say in the Institutes, Now both repentance and forgiveness of sins, that is, newness of life and free reconciliation, are conferred on us by Christ, and both are attained by us through faith. Calvin asserts that repentance is a gift through faith, that it is imputed to all believers upon their regeneration, meaning that both justification and our are fully established and accomplished in us by Christ upon our belief. This can also be seen in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." So it seems pretty clear from both these passages of what Calvin has just said that we are both simultaneously and fully justified and sanctified upon our regeneration by God in Christ for all those who believe. And so if this is true, and it is, why again does Paul tell us that we must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Didn't you just get done saying that we're fully sanctified in Christ and so sin has no dominion over us? It's a valid question. And I'm gonna rely on Dr. Michael Allen from RTS to help clarify what Calvin says here in his institutes. This is what Allen says in his book on sanctification. You see, while double grace comes upon us all at once, our transformation flows from our theologically prior, but not chronologically prior justification. Meaning, God justifies us so that God can and will sanctify us. The two are inseparable. It's impossible to be justified and not be sanctified by God, even though the way Christ works in us is different for every believer. Sanctification is not gifted to us without justification, being gifted to us at the same time. And justification has not occurred in us without us having been correspondingly fully sanctified by God. Ephesians 2:8-10 describes this somewhat confusing relationship. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are created in his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are there things that we need to be doing in our justified condition? that demonstrate our sanctification? Yes. But as we see here in Ephesians, these things have already been created for us in Christ, and they were already prepared beforehand by God in order that we can actually do them. Now I will be the first one to admit that understanding this can sometimes be a challenge, but it is nevertheless what Scripture says. Finally, one of the most validating defenses for both understanding fully completed and simultaneous justification and sanctification can be seen right here when Paul asks in Romans 6, one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? We need to ask ourselves, why would Paul even pose this rhetorical question if the initial declaration that we have been entirely justified in Christ does not also include our complete sanctification? it wouldn't make any sense for him to respond this way if it isn't painfully obvious that the radical nature of the gospel is defined by God doing everything for us. Paul does not have any caveats to Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't say that in addition to this, we need to do anything, which is why it's so radical and why our natural reaction is, should we sin, meaning disobey God's law, just so we can get more grace? Of course not. Which leads to my final point: How are we supposed to understand the law? Most everyone's first inclination is to view the law as God presented it to Moses at Sinai in the Ten Commandments. And this is a correct understanding of biblical law. And it could also be argued that the law, as written in the Ten Commandments, was always the underlying principle for how God wanted his people to live, even prior to its formal presentation in Sinai. And that when it was received by Moses, God was clarifying what the people of Israel just couldn't seem to understand because of their sin. So God wrote it down. Unfortunately, even this didn't do much in terms of their understanding. RTS professor J.V. Fesco writes in his commentary on Romans that once we have been freed from the bondage of sin, why would anyone want to return to it? Which is essentially a reiteration of Paul's rhetorical question in Romans 6-2. How can you die died of sin and still live in it? Well, I think we all know how and why. Because so much of our sin makes us feel good even those sins that we eventually regret and know that we will feel remorse for after the fact. But this still doesn't change the reality that we enjoy a great deal of our sin when we're doing it. Augustine in his Confessions writes, he says that we simply love the act of sinning for the sheer enjoyment of the fact that it is in conflict with God. And what's more, We also very often rationalize our sinful activity by twisting certain scriptures to mean things that they don't actually mean. These usually end up being sins that concern our comfort or how we would like to understand what God wants us to understand our joy. So it seems that we still have a sin issue. And so in light of this, let's look at what Paul says about the law in verse 14 how it relates to our sin. We are no longer under the law, but are now under grace. When Paul talks about the law in verse 14, he's not specifically referring to the law as it is presented in the Ten Commandments per se. Rather, he's using the term in sort of a covenantal sense, as a reference to the old works-based covenant, in contrast to the new covenant, the covenant of grace established by God with Abraham in Genesis 15, and was prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, and ultimately realized in Christ. Paul is actually doing a bit of systematic theology here in this verse. He's using the law as a reference for how we we all were once living under the judgment of the first Adam. But now, because of God's gracious love, we are now living under the second and the new and better Adam meaning we are now united to Christ in both his resurrection and new life. So Paul's telling us that the condemning judgment of the Old Covenant law is not what God uses to judge us anymore. We are now judged under the New Covenant. God now judges all those who believe based on Christ's perfect obedience death and resurrection. But we must also understand what Paul is not saying. Paul is not contending that in our justified condition in Christ, and consequently, in God's eyes, that sin will not be present in us. On the contrary, or Paul's account of his own struggle in Romans 7 would be meaningless. But what Paul is saying in verse 12 is that we shouldn't allow sin to take us over. Unfortunately, the harsh reality is, as James chapter 1 verse 15 explains, then desire when it has conceived his birth to sin, and then sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is insidious and devious because Satan wants so desperately to destroy all those who are in Christ, and he is relentless in his pursuit. And believers are his primary target. Simply look at Job. Satan finds the highest satisfaction in trying to turn faithful believers away from and against their Savior. And so he will go to extremes to cause us to fail in our attempts to walk as Christ has walked. So Paul is saying to believers, because we are in Christ, we are new creations. The law no longer is a sword hanging over our heads. Because by God's grace, in and through Christ, he has paid the debt for us. And so we are now free, even desirous, to exercise the law as it was always intended. As a means for how we are to love God and love one another. Galatians 5.14 shows us exactly this point. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if that's not enough, Romans 13.8. Romans 13.8-10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I don't know how it can be any clearer than that. But not unlike what Paul is saying in today's sermon passage, he does a very interesting thing here at the end of Romans 13. He begins by telling us that the law is fulfilled in loving our neighbor. But he also immediately follows this truth by giving us some pretty specific and graphic details as to how to do this in verses 12 to 14. And it's all grounded in putting on Christ. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Is our passage today difficult in some concepts? Yes, it is. But if we don't get this right, we will not only misunderstand what the gospel truly is, but our misunderstanding can lead us down two very bad paths, and they're both antithetical to the gospel. The first is legalism or moralism, which is simply thinking that our obedience can save us. And the other one is antinomianism, which is the belief that because we've been saved, we don't have to obey God's law anymore. Now, some theologians would argue that to avoid both of these misunderstandings, we need to strike a balance between these two theological ideas in order to keep the pendulum from swinging too far in either direction. Well, I vehemently disagree with that concept, that notion. And I would like to contend that there can be no balance in anything even remotely close to gospel truth. The gospel is the polar opposite of balance. Because the gospel is only true because it's God doing everything for us. And even our response is a gift from Him. Balance implies that there is something we need to do in conjunction with God's gracious work in Christ to save ourselves. So the solution to avoiding both legalism and antinomianism has nothing to do with balance. It has to do with the why of our obedience. It is an understanding that because of the gospel, we are now completely free from having to save ourselves. And so are free to love God and one another without any expectations of judgment. Our obedience to God's law, our ability to fight sin comes from realizing that our new freedom in Christ says that we are free to fail because Christ never did. Now please don't understand me, I'm not encouraging anyone to fail. Should we sin so that grace may abound? No! But when Paul says we are no longer under the law but under grace, he's saying that the power of the law to condemn us has been resolved by Christ for all those who believe. The promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the servant, which, while having his heel bruised, declares God's saving grace in the garden, even though historically these particular events had not actually happened yet. However, within a redemptive context, they had already been established and confirmed before the foundation of the world. Salvation has always been by way of God's grace. There was never a time in the history of creation when this wasn't true. It's always God moving first because God's grace defines everything, because God's love defines everything, even His law, and especially His law. Obedience to God's law, or our battling sin, is the outworking of God's love. is telling us right here, it's not the work itself that counts for anything, it's why we do it. Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 13 that if the why isn't what drives everything we do in our obedience, then it's just white noise to God. Our sin is antithetical to God's love, and if we don't understand that it's God's love that has defeated sin and death in Christ, then we will never understand how we ought to ever hope to or even want to battle sin in our lives. But when we do actually get this, we are now in a place that enables us in joy and love to battle our sin. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans 12, Romans 6, 12 to 14. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have shown us that we are to obey you. We find that so difficult sometimes even those who trust in you and are faithful. Because so often, Father, as Luther says, we forget the gospel, and we have to preach it to ourselves every day because we forget it every day. But Lord, help us to understand that it is through your work in Jesus Christ that we have any hope of being obedient to you and fighting our sin. But when we do understand this, we have hope, and we know that we can fight against all things evil in this world and be better and faithful servants to you. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus.